0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books in Asian Studies, a podcast series on New Books Network. My name is Huiying, and I'm here as one of the hosts on the channel. Today, it is our great pleasure to welcome Dr. Zhang Meng here with her new book, Timber and Forestry in Qing, China, that just came out in 2021 with University of Washington Press. Welcome, Dr. Meng.
0: Hi, um, Hui. It's my great pleasure to be here. And I've been a listener um, to the New Books Network for a very long time. And um, it is certainly great to have this opportunity to bring my own book to this channel.
1: We have been waiting for this book for a long time. So um, before we jump into the um, specificity of the book, would you like to share a little bit more about yourself, your academic background, or anything you want to share with the audience here?
0: Sure. Um, I grew up in a small city in Northern China, and I went to Peking University for college where I actually studied finance. Um, So during that time I did some very interesting research assistant work for a professor that is um, related to economic history. And at the time I felt that, oh, that's so interesting and definitely more work needs to be done that uh, combines a good knowledge of economics and also a historian's ability to work with primary sources. Um, so that's how I decided to pursue a PhD in history and uh, I went to UCLA for graduate school. So I still think that UCLA has a very great program for economic history uh, because not only were there um, great economic historians who work on different world regions in the history, history department. Um, but also we have good collaboration with economics and other social sciences uh, on campus. Um, but then, of course, after years of studying, my own understanding of history as a discipline also evolved. It's no longer just uh, uh, the, the, the sort of naive um uh, understanding of an undergraduate um, and I came to engage with other subfields such as um, environmental history and material culture and and so forth. Um, After um, uh, UCLA, I first worked at Loyola Marymount University for a few years and then I jumped at the opportunity when Vanderbilt searched for an economic historian and came to my current position.
1: Yeah, congratulations on the new position. <laughs> um, so you're talking about kind of you're coming into current stage um, by bringing different uh, fields of expertise, right? Finance, economic history, envir- environmental history, or Qing history, uh, Chinese history, material culture, just to name a few. And specific to this book. Um, Why did you choose or how did you come to focus on the subject or the uh, object of timber? What's special about timber? Mm -hmm.
0: So um, coming from economic history, my interest began with a question on how long distance trade was conducted. Um, So what kinds of formal and informal institutions worked to help the merchants solve some of the typical challenges, um, like contract enforcement, information asymmetry, and capital constraints, and to what to what extent these institutions were effective. So, um, for that, there's a there, there's a very rich literature on institutional economics and the economic history of long distance trade that I hope to engage with. Um, But as I got more into the dissertation project, uh, I tried to narrow it down to a specific trade and ended up with the trade of timber uh, for a number of reasons. First, um, it really satisfies my search for a bulk, capital intensive, large scale and long distance uh, trade. That is not just luxurious and sporadic, right? And second, um, the trade of timber was not heavily regulated or subsidized um, during this period in Chinese history, unlike salt or grain, right? So those are the kind of bulk commodities under more direct state supervision uh, in, in this time. So timber really could allow me to look directly at the private water institutions among the merchant groups that were uh, sort of, I hope um, it could be representative of other long distance trade at this time as well.
1: Yes. So thank you for explaining a little bit more how unique the trade of timber was compared to other kinds of um, commodities. Um, So following this line, and what's special about this time period as you were talking about? So was the trade of timber as unique as this in prior times in China or um, became less unique after the fall of the Qing? Or what's special about this particular Mm -hmm. time period? Right.
0: Um, So the book focuses on the Qing uh, period so roughly from the 17th century to uh, the very end of well to the beginning of the 20th century really Um, so the Qing period is interesting and important in Chinese historiography for multiple reasons but for me like from a more broader comparative perspective it provides a very interesting case um, because it is quite different from the very familiar narrative of the development of modern forestry. Um, uh, So rather than being just another case study that largely repeats the familiar narrative of um, say the rise of state-directed forest management and the later so-called scientific forestry such as in uh, early modern Europe, in Japan, in in, uh, British India, Southeast Asia, and so forth, Um, the Qing pattern really stands out from these other cases that the literature has already um, looked at, right? Uh, It's it's pattern of private initiatives for reforestation is something that we really haven't seen um, much in other regions um, in the early modern period. And uh, for that, I think it is a very forceful rebuttal against his historical teleology, and it invites us to think about the multiple paths of historical possibilities. And with this project, I um, I also came to realize the lack of scholarship that takes both the environmental and the economic. Uh, seriously so overall I think that there is a tendency among environmental historians to take the economic transactions for granted right so trade is always to be blamed and it is assumed to happen anyways and there's also a tendency among uh, pre-modern or early modern economic historians to take the resources for granted right where we care more about say the rise of industrial revolution but we don't care too much about where, The fuel or the the kind of resources come from. Um, uh, But I think really the the two aspects have to be examined together um, because uh, in the the case of timber and forestry, the particular form of state regulation, the particular form of forestry and the particular system of uh, trade and distribution, these are all highly intertwined and interdependent. So in both economic history and environmental history, I'm hoping to see more work that recognize the concerns and the priorities of each other and bridge this discursive gap between the two. And that's what I hope to achieve in, in this book.
1: Definitely. I think that's one of the um, largest contribution of uh, your book and also uh, one of the few or pioneering work that really engage these two um Thoughts or two perspectives together. Um, and following what you are saying about the intertwined and interdependent um, trade of timber and timber as the resource, also talking about the Qing state, particular form of invol- involvement, uh, which you kind of provided a um, close analysis throughout chapter one and two. Um, the question is, as you pointed it out, uh, if we see that the Qing imperial court's timber consumption had minimal impact on forest ecosystem of timber, then what was the Qing empire's impact on the world of timber?
0: mm mm-hmm. um- well, that's a great question and um i've been thinking a lot about the very long term political ecology of an agrarian empire uh, like imperial china and, and i'm not just talking about the late imperial period but imperial china for uh 2000 years right so occasionally we know that they occasionally they did have some very intensive state-directed project, right? That 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 directly influenced the transformation of landscapes, um, and sometimes those would have very long-lasting um, uh, impacts. Such as, you know, if the if you build a Great Wall, or if you um, uh, dig up the Great Canal, right? Um, and those tend to be the kind of activities that stand out in historical records. And therefore we pay a lot of attention to those kind of activities, especially in the case of Chinese history where the historical materials tend to have a state-centered bias, right? Um, so however, as I show in this book, if we do compare the state's consumption of timber, right? For some massive construction projects, if we compare them with the mass consumption over an extended period of time, not just in those uh, years or in, in, in that particular decade when the state did build something, but over the period of a century or more than a, or, uh, several centuries, then the state didn't seem to be the dominant driver of timber demand. Um, when we compare that to how much the market is consuming, right? um moreover, late Imperial China, uh, so basically from the uh, 14th century onward um, it did not have a system of state-directed forest management either, right um, The reason that some areas of China in this period developed regenerative forestry had nothing to do with any state, Led initiatives of forest conservation at all. Um, so, in that sense, um, as I put put it in the book, the state's impact seemed not to be great, right? Seemed minimal. Yet, still, right, despite the state's lack of direct concern with forests, I do think that. If we are thinking about the time horizon of centuries and even millennia, political organizations did play a central role in the transformation of Chinese landscapes. Uh, That transformation included the disappearance of uh, natural forests and the appearance of timber plantations managed by people. And this influence was not through the state's strong directions and regulations, but through the very weak incentives it provided um, consistently for a very long time, right? So by that, I mean, they, for example, by maintaining peace in broader areas for centuries at a time, by expanding the imperial administrative structure over larger territories and by recognizing and upholding private property norms and other things that would sound very rudimentary and not directly relevant to forestry. By doing these things, I think the state played a very pivotal role in the transformation of China's landscapes. Uh, so we have to keep in mind that pre-modern states were very weak in, in today's terms. Um, but the accumulated effect of their uh, continued existence itself enabled other more direct drivers, such as population growth and agriculture expansion and market development, to transform the landscape in irreversible ways.
1: I see. I think what you're saying is um, when we talk about or think about the Qing state's impact on the world of timber, maybe it's too narrow if we just interpret this impact as the state's direct consumption of timber itself, but there are other um, related or even tangentially related uh, other things that were actually impacting the either the consumption or production or the market or the ecosystem of this particular um, tree or uh, item. Yeah. And I think that's um, kind of naturally uh, leading to the second... Uh, not second, third, actually the central chapter of your book that dealt with this very extraordinary phenomenon um, speaking to or um, reflecting kind of the uh, people at the time or the society after the time come up or derived to this particular way to sustain or maintain timber supply. And you mentioned this very complex system of shareholding practices to sustain the timber supply. So what do you think is the core, is the one core feature of such a successful system?
0: Mm -hmm. Right, so um, by the 18th century, if not earlier, right, a huge volume of timber was cut not from natural forests, but from plantations. And by plantations, I'm talking about, um, you know, the, the, the planting of timber by small holders, right? Not the kind of huge slave uh, slaveholding cotton plantations of the American South, right? It's not the same kind of model. Um, so in this small holder, um, regenerative forestry, the return from planting the trees is very delayed, right? Because it, it you have to wait for um, at least 20, most likely 30 to 40 years before the trees could be harvested. So that requires very patient investment. Then the question is, how did the people at the time pull that off, right? In economic terms, it's a problem of Financing long term investment under liquidity constraints. So, even with our modern financial system nowadays, uh, we know that it continues to be a big problem in the state sponsored, household managed reforestation projects in China today. Um, so, you can imagine that difficulty was much more daunting in, in early modern times. So then, it turns out that they actually developed a very sophisticated shareholding system uh, based on um, expected, not realized, expected future revenues, and I think that is the key feature of this successful um, system. So the way in which private forestry was organized, it was um, uh, it seemed mundane, but at the same time ingenious um, as at the same time. Um, So for any scholar who knows something about uh, late Imperial Chinese land tenure, um, uh, I think it wouldn't be surprising uh, to say that the same kind of contractual formats for rice paddies were also used for timberlands. But out of these familiar contractual terms, um, they created abstract shares out of it, right? Um, so the claims on the future revenue from the trees could change hands as liquid financial instruments, so that the landowners and the planters they don't have to wait for a very long time for the trees to grow up. right? That means they could sell off their shares to potential investors with capital. Uh, years before the trees were harvested, right? So this shareholding practice in forestry is very similar to the proportional liability shareholding structure that were widely used in Chinese business partnerships. And I would even say that this practice in forestry anticipated the um, wide adoption of such a liability structure in the business partnerships. And if these financial practices sound very savvy for traditional uh, forestry, we also have to keep in mind that these were not only found in China's economic core areas, but also in um, the ethnically diverse, economically less affluent frontier region of southwest China as well. So I think this holds some very um, serious implications for how we think about Effective forestry and also the history of finance and business in a globally comparative network.
1: That's, I think, is indeed um, ingenious and also very eye opening when reading that chapter. That uh, almost it felt um, surreal. Maybe I'm too ignorant <laughs> that at that time people were coming up with this very sophisticated and you said lasting over uh, decades of years to maintain um, the trade and maintain the tree growth. and Yeah, it's very
0: smart. It's way beyond what I imagined before I yeah, get into the sources.
1: Yeah, so in addition to what happened or teasing out for us what happened, I was wondering whether you could share a little bit more how people at the time were talking about or writing about what they were doing. So in order to do away the um, anachronistic fallacy, So how was this concept of sustainability that we are quite familiar nowadays, and how was this concept being talked about um, in the sources that you were uh, dealing with?
0: Mm -hmm. Right, so first I want to say a few words um, to just to clarify what I mean by sustainable or sustainability in this book, right? Because um, these terms have become loaded with divergent meanings and different political inclinations as well. Um, I think oftentimes we think of the issue of uh, sustainability as uh, in sort of black and white terms as an either or question, um, but really it is a gradation of degrees, right? Um, and also sustainability has multiple dimensions uh, because For example, we hope a sustainable pace of resource use is also socially sustainable in that um, it does not involve the systematic deprivation of any particular social group. Um, And from a pragmatic perspective, um, if the kind of environmental measures that we come up today can prove to be sustainable, both environmentally and socially for, say, a couple of centuries, I would say we are very lucky and able um, to claim that we can be sustainable eternally is just too lofty and arrogant, I I would say. Um, So the practices of regenerative forestry in late imperial Southern China, I think it can be called sustainable in the following sense. Um, for centuries, they were able to regenerate timber at a pace that satisfied market and state demands and substituted for natural growth. And socially, uh, the multiple players along the supply chain, from the tenant planters um, at the bottom of the system, to timber owners to lumberjacks to rafters and brokers and merchants and bankers and so forth so all of these players despite their many conflicts and ne- negotiations ultimately they all had a stake in ensuring that the next rounds of trees were planted in time right um so the system is sustainable in that sense and we Certainly, that is already a quite remarkable achievement, but still, we don't want to exaggerate the level of sustainability that they achieved. Um, now, to your question about how the sources discussed this issue, um, I think my understanding is that the individual planters and the landowners didn't really care about sustainability right, they made their choices of crops, right, what kind of crops to grow to better their own livelihood and to increase their own income. Uh, It is just, it just turned out that in some areas, during some period, the best crop for that purpose turned out to be timber trees, right. Um, It's the same economic and livelihood calculations um, as, uh, say, the rice cultivators in the lowland or the potato growers on the hillside. Um, So in uh, the Chinese historiography, we are sort of familiar with the story of how uh, many uh, rice paddy, mulberry tree, and fish pond complexes in southern China managed to be sustainably productive for many, many centuries, right? Um, and they're upheld as examples of sustainability in some works. Uh, we're also familiar with the story of how the so-called, quote-unquote, shed people uh, who grew maize and new world crops on the hillside then brought big problems of deforestation and erosion in the early modern period. But I think it would be wrong to say that the rice growers were more sustainability-minded than the shed people, because I think their calculation is the same. And the same logic applies to the tree growers. Right, They were exploiting an, an economic opportunity generated by the expanding timber demand And the kind of institutions that they used to do that happened to be aligned with some of the objectives that we nowadays associated with uh, sustainability. Although not all of them, but some of them. So I think the lesson that we want to draw from this historical case is that um, if our grand policy objectives can be realized through local level institutions that align with the local people's livelihood interests, right? um, Then that works less costly and more sustainably than top-down technocratic uh,
1: directives. I see. I think it's just um, the uh, actual historical actors at the time were probably driven by simple um, interest. Right? But it, uh, for, uh, for a scholar or for an author that working on this subject, it's just amazing to see that different um, factors or different uh, players in this trade or in this uh, consumption or building or planting the trees that somehow miraculously uh, realized all kinds of goals for different parties. And as we're talking about, and as you already mentioned, touched upon a few times in the uh, questions or answers you provided before, there are multiple institutions. Uh, quite unique that enabled the success of um, the timber trade and timber uh, ecosystem at this time period. So through chapter four and five, you're focusing on uh, different kinds of institutions specifically, if I summarize that correctly. Um, And Particularly, you talked about the timber trade usually lasted years long and across long distances, and specifically, you collected two hundred and fifty-five timber trade debt cases. Um, So, out of curiosity and for that for those legal cases, I was wondering what was the most frequently uh, cited or frequent occurred challenge um, mentioned in those legal cases and how was that challenge usually resolved?
0: Mm -hmm. Right, so um, these two chapters just look at the timber market um, more closely and I find that the timber market was a very decentralized space and, and it continued to be the case until the early decades of the 20th century, although by that time, changes were already underway. Um, so this whole trading system um, was dependent on short-term credits, right? Um, so the short-term credit was like the central pump of this huge circulatory system. Um, in that situation, the risk of, default could be uh, devastating, not only to the merchants who could not get their money back, but also um, this crisis could fit into the upper stream players, right, Um, to the planters and influencing their decisions whether to plant trees for the next next, um, uh, round. Um, so that's why I turn to look at the cases of default. And default is not just um, the failure to pay. It could take many different uh, forms. Um, it could be, you know, the the attempt to extending your grace period over and over again. It could be um, that people already entered into a contract and then the market prices moved and one party try to take advantage of that price movement and uh, just revoke that earlier contract. So all of these forms of um, uh, contract violations, right, I put it under the sort of umbrella rubric of uh, default. Um, And to look at how people deal with these challenges, especially without a very interventionist court system, I turn to look at the sort of um, the the uh, informational and the financial functions of intermediaries and how private order enforcement within merchant organizations interacted with the court system um, and I find that uh, really in, in contrary to our stereotypical impressions of the um, the so-called licensed brokers, so in Chinese, the yahang, and um, the merchant organizations. So in Chinese, this would be the hui guan or the gong suo. Um, so these institutions um, could hardly claim any monopolistic fifth, although they try to do so. But there is no... Um, Sort of ensured protection of their monopolistic claims, right? In the end, um, uh, outside groups could very effectively get into this field and challenge uh, any dominant players and uh, make the uh, whole play field very competitive. That is especially for the larger market. Uh, for the for the um, redistribu- redistribution centers of timber, such as Hankou and Nanjing, for for this period, um, the role that these intermediaries and merchant organizations played was more um, based on information. Um, so as centrally positioned nodes in a network, they channeled information, enforced contracts, they tried to mediate disputes um, uh, among merchants that came from all different kind of places. Sometimes, um, uh, well, often they could do that autonomously, but other times in collaboration with state authorities. So um, in these two, two chapters, I try to tease out how these different intermediating um, agents um, interacted with both the merchant groups and with the state.
1: Thank you so much. I think as um, our audience, you can hear from our brief conversation so far in these um, different chapters or different uh, angles, uh, Dr. Mengjian in his book, Really, try to find different angles, different perspectives through various cases to present um, how timber and forestry was managed as um, a resource, um, as a trade, and also as a uh, or not as but a- actually achieved sustainable development. Um, it is really a rich and eye-opening book, and as you already achieved such a wonderful combination or production of scholarship, um, our last question, the time goes by so fast, our last question today is, could you share with us uh, what you are working on right now? What is your next exciting project?
0: Um, I'm actually working on two very different projects. Um, it might be too ambitious, um, but but I like sort of exploring um, unfamiliar territories and we'll see how that goes. So one project carries on my interest in the interactions between human institutions and the environment. And I try to move beyond China proper into the maritime world. So uh, in this project, I follow the social life of edible birds nests. So this is uh, made from the hardened saliva of a particular species, a very rare species of cave nesting swiftlets. And the project look at um, the period from the 16th century to the 19th century Um, During that time, this exotica from Southeast Asia transformed into a luxurious delicacy and a medical elixir um, highly pursued by the elite Chinese consumers, both within China and also in the Chinese diaspora overseas. Um, and they spurred a trade network that connected, again, multiple, multiple players is what I'm interested in, right? So in, in, in the South China Sea, including Chinese merchants, of course, but also the European East Indian companies and the um, traders from the island. Um, and it brought transformations to the life and the environment of both humans and the swiftlets, uh, in this case. Um, So that's one. And another direction of my research um, examines uh, the spread of foreign debt in non-Western regions uh, as an instrument of public finance in the uh, late 19th 19th to early 20th century. Um, So in this regard, I think, you know, past research has mostly focused on um, the adoption and the adaption of Western economic concepts and practices in China under the framework of um, the so-called self-strengthening or the westernization reforms. But I'm, um, my interest in this is not so much how China learned from the West, but but how the experiences of other quote-unquote oriental societies, right, say the Ottoman Empire, Egypt, the African colonies and so forth. So how the experiences of these other non-Western societies with Western-style public debts were filtered into the Chinese world of knowledge um, at this crucial period, late late 19th, early 20th century, and how these filtered knowledge uh, informed the intellectual currents and policymaking and... They also sort of contributed to um, uphold a view of the world political economy that conforms to the hierarchic capitalist order of international finance. So this, um, as you can see, um, the two projects are very different, but I think they're, both related to some aspects of this first book, right? There's an um, environmental and material uh, culture angle. There is also this credit and uh, uh, the the construction of debt relationships angle. But in this case, I'm looking less at the credit relation between individuals, merchants, but uh, between sovereign states.
1: This is so exciting, and as you were saying, these are even though these are two um, seemingly quite different. uh, They are, (laughs) Uh, they are very different projects, but indeed they uh, did follow the combined interest of uh, of kind of economic history plus whether environmental history or kind of state politics. Interactions. And I'm really excited that one is taking on or bringing uh, animal as an actor or the field of gastronomy. And the other one is more specifically uh, or more um, explicitly um, world comparative historical Mm -hmm. method. And it's really exciting to think about same or similar questions that you raised here in this timber and forestry question uh, book but continue to explore in different context in uh, the upcoming uh, two books and i really hope we could greet uh, we could read them uh, not so long (laughs) Thank, thank you so much yeah yeah. Uh, okay, I think, um, thank you again, Dr. Meng Zhang, for coming here and sharing with us. And to our listeners, And uh, today we have Dr. Meng Zhang with her new book, Timber and Forestry in Qing China, Sustaining the Market, that came out 2021 with University of Washington Press. And I really encourage you to read the book to learn more, not just about the tree itself, but the, uh, all the exciting and um, maybe same questions you have known, but with a different answers you might be expecting from this book. And that is all for today. Thank you very much for listening. See you next. See you in our next episode.